and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. In last week's episode, we got a brief preview of the Israeli election from Raoul Wutliff, chief political correspondent at the Times of Israel. This week, Raoul rejoins us to help us navigate the complicated results and what they mean for Israel's future. Raoul, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. All right, let's start off with a nice, easy, simple question. The election was on Tuesday. We're speaking on Wednesday evening Israel time. Surely you can tell us which party won the election. <laughs> well, Sophie, that would be... Uh... It would seem to be an easy question after an election, but in fact, we won't know that answer for a number of weeks, maybe even months. Um, and in fact, we might never get an answer because we may may even be forced into third elections in Israel. Um, so at the moment, uh, it's very difficult to say. Um, there are winners and losers on both sides, but what is uh, is easy to say is that Benjamin Netanyahu has, uh, has not won and uh, is uh, is now in a tough position, um, being not only the the second largest party, but also uh, failing to to reach the majority of sixty one seats in the hundred twenty seat Knesset. If there is no clear cut winner, and as you say it, there are winners and losers on on both sides. Who could we perhaps say is the party that you know most improved its stock from before the election to now? Well, I would say that um, in bigger picture, the Blue and White Party, who previously, while they scored 35 seats out of the 120-seat Knesset on par with the Likud, and now they are down to probably 32, they are now the largest party. They're now considered a party with a real shot at forming some sort of government, um, potentially a national unity government. Previously, they were ruled out. They weren't given the option to form a government. Netanyahu forced the elections before they could have an opportunity to. And now they are being seen as a, as a potential party of power. Mm-hmm. Um, in April, about 43% of the votes cast went to the five most straightforward ideological right-wing parties. This week, though those parties have merged and morphed into just three lists, they only got about 34% of the vote. That's a difference of like 10 seats in the 120-seat Knesset. Where did all those right-wing votes go? Well, it's a very good question. And we see in every election various votes moving across the board. Israel Beitenu and the party of Victor Lieberman is one of the parties that can certainly be described as a winner here. And they've gone from five seats to nine seats, which is a huge swing. They've certainly taken some of those votes that were lost from the right-wing bloc. Um, according to the way the uh, the votes are split up, it doesn't necessarily mean that there, there were less voters. I have to take a specific look and we'll find those, see those final numbers in the coming days when the final result, including all the votes of diplomats around the world, the soldiers and people who voted in hospitals and prisons, once those are counted, we'll be able to look at the exact numbers. But... There's also uh, other parties doing better that have changed the percentages slightly. So we saw both outsourced parties, Shas and UTJ, slightly increase their percentage of the vote. And we primarily saw a huge bump in the vote for the Arab parties, um, much stronger turnout, and then going from 10 seats to 13. Mm-hmm. 
doubtless one of the winners would be the joint Arab list, the uh, conglomerate of four different Arab parties. They had a much improved showing, and um, I've seen projections ranging from 13 seats all the way up to actually 15 seats, which would be quite a lot, perhaps even, I think, a new high watermark for the Arab parties. I think the largest they've ever had uh, was 13. What will that increased strength for the Arab party. What will that mean in the coming negotiations and in the new Knesset? Well, we see in Israeli politics a a general rough split, uh, you could say down the middle of of the right-wing parties allied with the ultra-Orthodox parties and the left-wing parties and the uh, Arab parties. Now, I don't say they're allied together because there's never been such an alliance and the Arab parties have never joined the government. Um, in the current situation, uh, with the ultra-Orthodox parties allying with the right, it means that the right almost always have a majority. On the other side of the political spectrum, the Arab parties have been more or less delegitimized from being able to sit in any government and therefore there's no natural bond between the left and the Arab parties. We're unlikely to see a huge shift in this election, but we, we will see um, a much bigger impact of the of the Arab parties, um, not only because they're the, now the third largest party, which means they could potentially become the party that leads the opposition, um, but also because of their ability to push the blue and white party and and the other left-wing uh, parties with them over that 61 mark. If the um, Arab parties were to recommend to President Rivlin that Benny Gantz, the chairman of Blue and White, would form a government, then that would give him enough power, um, enough recommendations to be able to do so. So at the moment, there's a lot of talk about the possibility of promises to the Arab Israeli parties potentially to give them chairmanship of various Knesset committees. It's Like I said, it's very unlikely that we'll see them sitting in government. I would say almost uh, almost impossible to imagine that would happen after this election, but we're certainly seeing a, a shift in their involvement and impact in the wider Israeli politics. Raul, by your accent, I think it's safe to guess that you are a native speaker of parliamentary democracies um, for our listeners who might not be. You know, what happens now? Um, And here I I don't mean, um, you know, who will end up on top, who's in, who's out. I literally just mean what happens now? You know, you're talking about 61 seats and chairmanships and portfolios. So what's the next step? How do we go from the election results to a new government? Well, in fact, in Israel, there are really three stages to an election. And what we've seen is just the first, the public vote. At the end of the public vote, we find out how many seats each Knesset party has. The second stage is where all of those parties go and meet with the president of Israel, who has the discretion to choose the leader of one of those parties, in fact, a member of one of those parties, to form a coalition. And in that second stage, each of those parties recommends to the president who they think should be the person to form the coalition. And there's no exact set-in-law prescription of what the president has to do um, based on those recommendations. It's generally been understood that if one party were to get the recommendation of 61 MKs, and again, that's 61 out of 120, so therefore a majority, then they would be given the first shot at forming a coalition. We currently don't have any party or any bloc that will have 61 MKs. So in lieu of a majority, it would seem that the party that is the largest party 
would be uh, given the opportunity to form the coalition first. And that's what we may end up seeing. After that section, as I said, that's the second stage of the Israeli uh, election, when the president has given the mandate to form a government to one of the MKs, uh, the third stage is the coalition negotiations, where the parties will meet and decide on the uh, what sort of government they want, which ministerial portfolios are going to go to who, and then they will sign coalition agreements. And eventually, if they manage to, 61 MKs will vote in favour of the new government. Those are the three stages. We've just finished the first. The second stage is set to begin next week. The real complicated stage, it looks like in this election, will be the third stage, the actual negotiation, the actual ability to form a coalition. Um, who's going to be able to do that, we're yet to see. One final question to close with. Last week, you told us when you were previewing the election that you are the reigning champion since April of the betting pool in the Times of Israel newsroom. Did you pull out another uh, victory? Well, the final results are yet to come in. Um, I'll start with saying that at the moment, it looks like I'm one seat behind one of our deputies of the Times of Israel, Gavin, and we're yet to see whether... I might just push ahead, end up winning the pool again. And like I said, in my eyes, justifying my role as the, as the political correspondent. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll all be pulling for you. Folks, very important to follow uh, all of the breaking news as the final votes come in and the uh, wheeling and dealing among the parties begins. Definitely head to timesofisrael.com for all of Raul and his colleagues' excellent insight. Raul, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks, Sashi. From 2009 to 2017, Sarah Hurwitz worked in the White House, serving as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Senior advisors to the president aren't known for having much spare time, and yet, during those years, Sarah also went on a personal spiritual journey, discovering a connection to Judaism that she had never felt before. That's a journey that she continued once she had left the White House and one that she recaps in her new remarkable book entitled Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism, after finally choosing to look there. Sarah and I spoke this week on People of the Pod. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. After your time uh, in the Obama administration ended, you transitioned from a White House speechwriter writing about politics, about government, to someone exploring and writing about Judaism. What brought on this change? Yeah, it's funny. You know, when I was in the White House, I broke up with a guy I'd been dating, and I was just looking to fill my time. And I happened to get an email newsletter from the local JCC about an intro to Judaism class. And I'd grown up with very little Jewish background, didn't have much of a Jewish practice, but I sort of signed up for the class on a whim, and I was blown away by what I found. You know, I think if your only points of contact with Judaism are two high holiday services that you don't really understand and kind of a, a lifeless Seder, you don't necessarily think that Judaism has a lot of wisdom to offer you about how to be a good person and how to find spiritual connection and how to lead a meaningful life. But in this class, I discovered that Judaism provided all of that. And so I started taking additional classes. I started reading hundreds of books. I studied with rabbis. And I really struggled to learn about Judaism. The options were either these 
kind of intro books that were very nuts and bolts or these really sophisticated academic books. And I just decided, you know, I'm a speechwriter. Maybe I'll try to write the book that I wish I'd had five years ago that kind of gave me both the basics about Judaism, but also unearthed some of its deeper insights to really inspire me and excite me to learn more. So that's really what my book is. One of those old saws about writing is that you should, you know, write what you know. And you're someone who's had this really incredibly successful career in politics, in speech writing, and the book is not about politics. Why why did you choose to make that decision? It's funny, when I was asking for advice about what I should do next after the White House, and I told someone, you know, I think I want to write this book on Judaism, she said, oh, no, 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 no. First write a book about politics, and then you can write that weird book. Um, But, you know, the truth is, I spent five years learning and studying, and I really struggled. It was very, very hard to put together the contours of Judaism for myself. I mean, just a phrase like, the rabbis said X. Like, okay, who are the rabbis? Oh, okay, when the Romans destroyed the temple in the year 70, wait, I'm I'm sorry, the temple. Uh, Right. So we used to make sacrifices at a temple in Jerusalem. Whoa, we were sacrificing animals. Why? Well, the Torah says, it's like, okay, what exactly is the Torah? Like, who, who wrote it? Where is it from? You know, just the simplest phrases that we so casually toss off have thousands of years of history behind them. And, you know, it took me about 500 hours of learning before I could really begin to learn deeply. And I wanted to save people that time, right? I wanted people who are looking to connect more deeply with their Judaism, people who aren't Jewish, but are just curious about Judaism. I wanted to kind of save them that those hundreds of hours and give them what they needed so that they can then start learning deeply for themselves. Your, you know, your searching process, searching or, or finding process, you know, that you spoke about when you came closer to uh, to Judaism, that took place while you were working in the White House. And one thing that I'm wondering, did you see a difference in your work product between before and after, you know, you began that learning experience? Did you find yourself invoking scripture more or using kind of religious themes more in your writing? No, it definitely didn't <laughs> change my work product. But what it did change is that it made me recognize how much Jewish values inform, you know, my career in public service. You know, if you just take the core Jewish idea from the Torah that we're all created in the image of God, which you don't have to believe in God to understand what that means, which is that we're all you know, infinitely worthy and totally equal and completely unique, which Rabbi Ritz Greenberg calls those the three inalienable dignities mm-hmm. based on an ancient Jewish text. And beginning to learn about that core idea, I thought, wow, this is the idea that animates every speech I've ever written. You know, like when Mrs. Obama was talking about educating girls around the world who don't have a chance to go to school, she would talk about how each of these girls has an entire world within them, how these girls are just as worthy as any other child, how each of these girls has this unique, you know, thing to offer the world. And I just thought, wow, I'm beginning to recognize these Jewish values in so much of what I do in politics. So I think it didn't change anything, but it did help me recognize and more deeply understand why I was doing what I was doing in public service. In the book, uh, you write about how you believe that Judaism is in a pivotal moment of transition, of transformation. Tell us more about that and where you see Judaism going. Sure. So, you know, post-emancipation, which was the, the movement in Europe where, whereby Jews could become actually more integrated into secular society, you know, Jews have left these insular ghettos for the most part and have begun 
becoming you know, assimilated into broader society. So we no longer live in isolated communities where we all lead a Jewish life, right? Where we're, we're just all doing the same practices, eating the same foods. You know, instead we're kind of, we're assimilated into the broader society. And in America, that's meant in some ways that we've kind of tried to make Judaism into an American style religion, right? With like a Sunday school and a once a week worship and this mm-hmm. and that. And, you know, it's a little bit of a challenging fit to do that because I think Judaism as it's been conceived for the past 2000 years is more of a way of life. It's not just a religion. It's actually an entire way of life. And so I think we're still struggling post-emancipation to figure out what does it mean to be Jewish? You know, as far as I see it, I think the biggest challenge for us going forward is going to be Jewish literacy. It's going to be actually knowing something about Judaism. Because what I found is that when I didn't really know anything about Judaism, it just struck me as incomprehensible and kind of dull and rote. But once I started learning, I began to realize just how incredibly powerful and relevant and wise so much of Jewish tradition and ethics is today. But, you know, you can't really know that unless you start learning. And so I think, you know, so many of us stop learning when we're 13, and then we grow up and we kind of pass on that same, like, 13-year-old Judaism to our kids. And I think we're kind of at the point where we're going to have to grow up and actually start learning about Judaism as an adult, which is where I think you begin to unearth some of the deeper insights uh, that you don't see as a kid. That resonates with me so deeply. I mean, I talk with my friends sometimes about, you know, it's not a question of who's a good Jew, who's a bad Jew, but in in much the same way as, you know, you're not fully accessing your Americanness if you are not engaging with, you know, Mark Twain and Frederick Douglass, you're not accessing your Judaism as fully as you could be if you're not engaging with our canon, with our texts, with our teachings. I mean, exactly, right? Like, I think if someone said, you know, my seventh grade history class was so boring and lame, like all those dumb worksheets. I mean, I just stopped <laughs> learning American history after that because it was just so dumb. Like, hikes, that's not acceptable. And I think also if you stop learning at 13 and you kind of just attend services twice a year, you can look at the Jewish prayer book and you can think, well, Judaism seems to think that God is a man in the sky who rewards us when we're nice and punishes us when we're naughty and controls everything. And I think for many of us, including me, it's a very challenging theology. I I can't buy that. You know, I just look around at daily life and I, I can't buy that. And if that is true, then I'm not interested in believing in that kind of God. But Judaism actually offers wildly sophisticated theology and spirituality but you got to do some learning. You know, there are mystics who say, Jewish mystics who say that God is everything. You're God, I'm God, we're all one, we're all connected. There is, you know, Martin Buber who says that God is what arises in deep relationship between two people when they're fully encountering each other in their very fullest humanity. What comes between them is God. There's Mordecai Haplin who says that God is the process by which we become our highest, truest selves. You know, I delve into many of these various Jewish God conceptions in my book. And a lot of people have told me, like, I had no idea. I just assumed I had to be an atheist because I don't believe in that man in the sky. And it's like, nope, actually, Judaism provides a lot of really sophisticated and very moving theology and spirituality that I think a lot of Jews would really find resonates for them if they did the learning. Now, Sarah, you write in the book that you find yourself frustrated with the divisiveness around Israel and the Jewish community. What do you think American Jews can do to bridge some of that divisiveness that exists within our community today? Why do you think it is so difficult for us to approach the subject with nuance? Yeah, it's so interesting. No one has ever once said to me, Sarah, what do you think about America? But people (laughs) all the time say to me, what do you think about Israel? It's like, 
people realize America is an entire country has you know hundreds of millions of very diverse people has all kinds of industries you know has a history has a culture has languages you know and i would just say that same is true of israel right this is an entire country filled with diverse people it has a history a culture languages industries but i know what they're asking right when they say what do you think about israel they're saying what do you think of the modern conflict between israel and the palestinians and I really regret that Israel has become reduced down to this one very difficult conflict. I find it really frustrating. And I think that what we can do as American Jews is to try to engage in the discussion of Israel, both you know, reminding people that there is much more to Israel than this political situation, number one. And number two, when we do discuss the political situation, doing so with nuance and complexity and listening to alternative viewpoints you know, I think the charged exchange of one-sided talking points that so often defines the debate around Israel is not helping anyone, and it's very divisive. You are someone who clearly sees yourself as an advocate. You wrote this in the image that is in the image of God, this in the image idea and the inalienable dignities that flow from it are the very values run through just about every speech I have ever written. And actually, this entire book can be seen in some ways as advocacy on behalf of Judaism itself, tied up nicely in the conclusion that you spoke about a little bit earlier, where you, you're basically imploring Jews to choose Judaism, to engage with Judaism, to take part in this period of transformation and transition. AJC is an organization that sees ourselves as a Jewish advocacy organization. What does it mean to you to be a Jewish advocate? So what it means to me is to learn deeply. It is to really immerse myself in Jewish ethics and theology and history to really understand as much as possible. And, you know, you could spend millions of lifetimes learning and still only scratch the surface. But to the extent that it's possible for you to learn about Judaism so that you can then go out and share with people what about it most moves you. Right. And, in, you know, I think different people learn in different ways. They connect to different aspects of Judaism. Right. I think some people are really taken by spirituality. Some are very interested in Jewish ethics. Some love creating really beautiful and meaningful holiday celebrations. Some folks love having Shabbat every week. I think whatever it is that moves you, I think, you know, learning deeply about that and interpreting it to make it your own is just the key. And then once you have fallen in love with the tradition, once you have aspects of it that you love, then I think it's important to go out and share with others, both Jews, who, you know, you want to kind of help understand Judaism more deeply. But I also think it's important to share about Judaism with non-Jews. You know, we certainly don't proselytize. That is not something that Jews do. But proselytizing means saying to someone, you're not okay as you are. You have to believe like I do. And we don't do that. But don't proselytize doesn't mean don't share. And I think that each of the world's religious traditions offers tremendous moral wisdom and wisdom about how to be human. And I really appreciate it when people of other faiths share their wisdom with me. And I think that we as Jews can share our wisdom with others. You write about how before you began this journey, you know, the extent to which you engaged with Judaism was perhaps really more just through like a social justice lens. And there's this trope, it's really kind of become cliched at this point, I think, that I'm sure you're familiar with, around the phrase tikkun olam, right? This idea of repairing the world, of, of leaving the world a better place than we found it, where there are some people for whom that has come to 
embody like the entirety of their Judaism, that Judaism really just means, you know, an exhortation to engage in social justice work. And then there's some people who basically parody and kind of mock that and say, not necessarily in good faith, but basically say like, you know, Judaism is so much more than that. I think what I'm hearing from you is that there's a lot of truth to both sides there. What's your take on that debate? So, you know, I think it is absolutely true that tikkun olam and social justice are a core part of what it means to be Jewish. That's also true of being Christian and being Muslim and Mm -hmm. being a decent secular human being, (laughs) right? Social justice is not unique to Judaism. However, Judaism has a very, very specific Jewish approach to how you go about repairing the world, to how you go about helping those who are vulnerable. And I think it is really important for Jews who care about this to not just say, okay, tikkun olam, I'm Jewish, social justice is my Judaism, but to actually understand what that means. You know, what does Jewish law say about how to help those who are struggling? What does Jewish law say about our obligations to others? not just financially, but emotionally. You know, what is our obligation to support those in our lives when they are sick, when they are struggling with the loss of someone they love? You know, what what does that mean to support another human being? There is a vast and incredibly beautiful body of Jewish thinking around all of this. So I think that, you know, if social justice really is a core part of your Judaism, I think it's incumbent upon you to learn deeply what Judaism actually has to say about that. And then you can really deeply embody the Jewish approach to social justice. Well, folks, the book is Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There, available wherever great books are sold. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on People in the Pod. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Avital Chizik Goldschmidt is the Life Features Editor at The Forward. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, Salon, and Tablet, among others. Avital teaches journalism at Yeshiva University's Stern College for Women and does pastoral work alongside her husband, Rabbi Benjamin Goldschmidt, in New York City. Last month, Avital wrote a column for The Forward asking, Why does no one care about violence against Orthodox Jews? Referring to the string of assaults on visible Jews in Brooklyn. Avital is here joining us on People of the Pod. Avital, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So recently, police arrested a suspect connected to the assault of Rabbi Avraham Gopin uh, in Crown Heights. And that was an assault that occurred last month, but it's unfortunately one of many assaults. Um, And of course, while it's a relief that police were able to locate a suspect, it doesn't take away from the fact that there are a string of assaults on Orthodox Jews in New York. I'm curious how you feel the city has been treating these assaults, this string of assaults, and whether or not you do indeed see an increase in the attacks on this community. Um, Anti-Semitism has absolutely increased in the past few years. The trends are proven, um, and there's a lot of conversation around it, which is why I think it's pretty striking to see the city being much more hesitant in dealing with anti-Semitism, specifically faced by visible Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. That has been really troubling for me, and that is why I wrote this column. I could not understand why this was not really, you know, almost a state of emergency mm-hmm. for the city. 
And, and in fact, I mean, is this a matter of the media reporting more attacks on the community, especially after the attack in Pittsburgh? Or has there really been an increase in the number of attacks? I mean, what's the word within the Jewish community? There has always been tension for Orthodox Jews in their communities that they live in. And that's for various reasons. And some of them, I don't think, are tied to anti-Semitism at all, mm. are legitimate tensions between neighbors. But certainly there have always been cases of you know, violence even at times. And any, you know, Crown Heights Orthodox Jew will tell you that. So this is not particularly new. I think the frequency is new. I think certainly the tension by the media is new. I think we understand that these are not one-off incidents. There is a trend here and we need to be paying attention to it. And that, to my mind, is that I believe that, you know, people, in this case, perpetrators feel really emboldened by a politically heated climate, one that was, in my mind, unequivocally created by the president of the United States. There is a culture of xenophobia that has really permeated, you know, very deeply, unfortunately, to many American minds. And now people feel comfortable taking action on this. So there are a lot of pieces here. Yes, there has always been anti-Semitism. Yes, there have been incidents over the years, certainly, for Orthodox Jews who wear their yellow stars so to speak, on their sleeves. But today, this is sort of exacerbated by the rhetoric, by the way that our discourse has really, you know, escalated into something dangerous. Mm-hmm. And do you believe this is outside New York City as well, across the country, not just exclusive to the city? According to the statistics, that seems to be the case. You know, New York City will be, because of our, you know, larger population of Orthodox Jews, we will inevitably be the sort of I think, the front line uh, when it comes to this. And as I wrote in my column, Orthodox Jews are in the front lines of anti-Semitism. We will always be the first ones attacked because we, again, are wearing our identities on our sleeves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I, I do think this is true across the board, but New York City is a sort of just a much more concentrated example. Yeah. So we're talking about the implications of this for the Orthodox Jewish community, but should the Jewish community across the board be concerned about this, be they secular Jews, be they reform, conservative? Um, you know, what are the implications for the entire Jewish community, regardless of denomination? Well, certainly anyone who is publicly identifying as Jewish runs a risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is certainly true in Europe. We have seen that happening there, which I have also ran about in the past. And I, I don't know, but there is a sort of nagging worry for me that that may come here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, identifying publicly as a Jew is not in any way uh, limited to Orthodox Jews, obviously. Jewish institutions, synagogues, schools, community centers are certainly at risk, which has been a conversation since the attack on Pittsburgh. Uh, and that is a non-denominational problem. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that the statistics do show that there has indeed been a rise. And indeed, the New York Police Department report in June revealed that there was a 64 percent increase in hate crimes in the first months of 2019. Over the same period last year, and specifically attacks on Jews almost doubled from 58 last year to 110. And earlier this month, Mayor de Blasio announced the opening of a new office for the prevention of hate crimes. What more should be done by this city, New York City, to address the rise in anti-Semitism, if anything more? Yes. Well, I'll just quibble with you there. De Blasio announced this 
office for hate crimes was going to be opened back in June at Gracie Mansion. And he promised for it to happen immediately. It took him several months and honestly, several attacks later, you know, and quite a bit of outrage for that to really happen quickly. Fair point. So <laughs> there was a lot of, you know, anxiety, I think, within the Jewish community about making sure that happens, that there is an office, there is someone who is at least officially committed to dealing with this problem. Now, I'm still skeptical of, you know, bureaucratic offices, you know, having real impact. We know Donald Trump has appointed an envoy to anti-Semitism, and I don't really see a change. I don't really see the White House calling out white supremacy. So there is a question of whether these sorts of appointments will do much, but it is appreciated, I think, at least by the Jewish community, that there is some sort of attention being given. I would personally love to see bravery on both sides of the political aisle in the American political system, the courage to call out anti-Semitism and racism, even when it is politically inconvenient for you, even when it is coming from your side. Um, This is something else that I wrote about in my column. I feel very passionately that we cannot only, you know, I work at Forward, I occupy a sort of more liberal circle. We cannot only call out anti-Semitism when the perpetrator is wearing a Make America Great Again red baseball cap, Mm. right? Or is on 4chan spreading you know, rumors about immigrants. We also need to be able to call them out when it's coming from someone who is saying, you know, death to Israel, right? So that sort of bravery is something that we are not seeing much of, unfortunately, and we really need. Yeah. Well, okay. So you, you talked about white supremacy and anti-immigration movements and also the anti-Israel movements. What are the various sources of anti-Semitism that you see emerging during this period of time, especially or maybe even in particular in Crown Heights, where these strings of attacks are taking place? What's behind this wave? Um, you know, I think what I said earlier, I think really people are emboldened by a climate of hate and anger, and Jews are the eternal scapegoats for that anger. So whatever the problems are, and by the way, I am concerned when the next recession hits, how that will affect anti-Semitism, how that will affect the Jewish community, that is something we should be looking out for. You know, I really see this as an outgrowth of larger sickness in our society. Mm. So in other words, this is coming out of an empowerment of hate, regardless of where that hate is coming from, regardless of the motivation. Um, Hate has become normalized. Mm -hmm. Avital, you yourself are Orthodox and presumably live in New York City. And I'm curious what kinds of safety precautions you feel the need to take given this recent wave. Um. You know, I don't think we're really changing the way that we live right now. We continue to dress as we do. We continue to lead Jewish lives and proud Jewish lives at that. You know, certainly we are careful to make sure that our institutions have proper security. Uh, you know, I still feel blessed to live in this country, to live in New York City, and I am optimistic about our future, our near future. Let me say it that way. Um, but I don't think I'm changing much in terms of safety precautions, other than that, you know, I'm not putting on baseball caps like one would in Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a very good point, that uh, that's another place uh, in this world where people who are visibly Jewish have actually, it's been suggested that they not be visibly Jewish, that they 
uh, do not wear their kippah for fear of attacks. What is your take on that kind of response? And of course, I'm speaking about Germany. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of response uh, to a rise in anti-Semitic crimes. You know, I, I think it's unfair to judge. You know, if people are afraid for their personal safety. They have to do what they have to do. Uh, I find it very painful to have to do that when we are in places in Europe where we feel the need to do that, uh, the need to sort of obfuscate one's identity to erase oneself is so uncomfortable, yeah. uh, especially when you are, you know, raised Americans. We are so used to dressing proudly as Jews and being respected for it. The idea of having to do that is very difficult. Uh, but again, I mean, personal safety comes first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Avital, I hope that you continue to be healthy and well and safe, uh, you and your family. And I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age old question. Is it good for the Jews? Democracy. Good for the Jews? Well, it goes without saying that Jews living in democratic countries have been able to flourish as they were unable to for much of Jewish history. For we 21st century American Jews and Jews across the diaspora today, democracy keeps us safe, guarantees our rights, and obligates our elected leaders to reform and do better when that safety or those rights are threatened. But I'm thinking about democracy this week, not in the abstract, but specifically in relation to Israeli democracy, which was on display for the second time in 2019. Election Day, or Chag HaDemokratia, the Festival of Democracy, as some call it, is a time to appreciate the incredible improbability of a Jewish democracy. Israel, a Jewish state reborn after 2,000 years in a part of the world that has hardly known democracy— nevertheless has managed to keep one for 71 years and counting. That's no small feat. According to some measures, that makes Israel the 20th oldest democracy in the world. But democracy means more than just having elections. And on that measure, too, Israel gives us cause for celebration. The overtly racist Otsma Yehudit party fell far short of the electoral threshold and so won't even be in the Knesset. At a time when great democracies like France and Germany have seen far-right parties like the National Rally and Alternative for Germany enter their parliaments, this victory for democracy cannot be taken for granted. What's more, Israel's Arab minority turned out in large numbers and appears to have increased their seats in the Knesset over April's totals, another victory for the health of Israeli democracy. Winston Churchill famously said, democracy is the worst form of government except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Israel's democracy isn't perfect. No, democracy is. And Israel's may be a bit rough around the edges as this do-over election, which may result in yet more deadlock, makes clear. But it is still worth celebrating. And it certainly is. Good for the Jews. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. 
We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 